This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE IntelliNews. Subscribe at bne.eu. So, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Ben Aris. I'm the editor in chief of BNE IntelliNews. Um, we cover emerging Europe, um, uh, North Africa. I'm joined today by a job. Mendoza Wilson, uh, who's an old friend and also the uh, chief spokesman for SCM, um, the holding group for Ukraine's biggest businessman, Renat Akhmedov. And um, we're hoping to talk to Jock and get an update on what the mood is in, in Kiev. And secondly, I also want to speak specifically um, about, from a business perspective, how all this instability is affecting business people. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, nobody wants a war. Ukraine is in the process of transition. These companies are building a new economy and all of this must be a huge pain in the neck. And then finally, um, the, to look specifically at this um, oligarch issue that Zelensky last year launched this anti-oligarch campaign that IFIs have been pushing for it. But at the same time, these are the biggest companies in the country with the most money. They're investing, they're modernizing, they want to make profits. So they're a good thing to an extent, um, we will, maybe Jock can give us some feedback on that. Uh, on a technical note, we're doing this on Zoom. There'll be a recorded version on our YouTube channel at the end. And um, we're also streaming. So hello to everyone on Twitter. Um, you can go and see this afterwards on YouTube. Um, and I invite everybody to go to bneintellinews.com slash welcome, where you can find the links to all of these. Uh, also to sign up for our editor's picks, which is our daily digest, uh, which I recommend. So let's dive in. Jock, good to see you. I was and you, Ken. <laughs> how, I guess the most normal English question would be, how's the weather? But it's actually kind of pertinent these days, isn't it? Is the ground frozen? Well, uh, I think, uh, firstly, the weather is uh, unseasonably mild. Um, uh, you know, I think it's about two or three degrees plus in Kiev uh, this morning when I was out earlier. And it's been all over a relatively mild winter. I know there uh, may be some of us that there's listening or amongst us who are uh, military strategists uh, <laughs> or think they are. And a lot of discussion has been about whether... Uh, super cold weather would make an invasion, ground invasion more likely because it would make it easier to move uh, mechanized armaments, tanks and uh, su supply chains uh, into place. However, um, I think that point is well overrated. Um, I think other issues are far more important than that. I'm sure we'll come on to them in this discussion, but it's nice to be here today. And thank you very much for the invitation. You're welcome. But is it still sub-zero or is it just right on no, the edge? Plus. No, it's plus. It's plus. It's so been hovering for the last week between plus and minus, and at the moment the snow is melting, and it was uh, it was really I think it must have been about plus four when I went out this morning. So right. no, it feels it, you know if you've lived in this region and some of the people on this call have probably lived in this region, worked in this region, um, it's unseasonably mild uh, mm -hmm. for February. Uh, I, I would have expected still to be in sub-zero temperatures and snow on the ground. It feels a little bit more like the early days of March than the early days of February. Um, right. I, I'm not sure what that means from a security point of view, but um, for someone living here, it's quite pleasant. <laughs> so look, come to the, the main question. Well, what's the mood like? Because um, you, you must be aware in, in the West, um, English language press, I mean, there's been this, this, this hue and cry. I mean, there's been all this 
I don't want to say the word warmongering to to mm. give away my bias on this particular issue, but um, there's um, definitely a lot of fear, uh, a lot of reporting, uh, a lot of intel being issued, a lot of it coming out of Washington. However, um, the reports coming from Kiev seem to paint a much calmer picture. Uh, we, we have a correspondent there and he wrote a piece last yes. week when in Voxbox people yeah. and nobody seemed to, to mind. Having said that, we sent him out to the regions and to the east uh, where he is at the moment. I talked to him this morning and he says there people are a little bit more concerned that you know, a mm -hmm. lot of people are dismissive, but there are people making evacuation plans, you know, um, putting a suitcase together and bought some supplies. And well, what's your general impression? I think the situation in okay, Kiev so is different from the East. I, I'm, I've been in both. I have not been in, I've been in the East last was in December uh, in Mariupol where I, I go frequently. Uh, you, you, might, you may know that uh, Metinvest, uh, which is the metals and mining business of SCM, has two large steel plants, which are in Mariupol. Uh, I also sit on the advisory board of the university in Mariupol. So I was there and uh, I think uh, obviously, you know, you're only 36 kilometers from the contact line. And so there is a greater understanding uh, of uh, the real human risk that people face if there is a conflict. Nonetheless, um, everything was going ahead as per normal, but with a very strong sense of, of patriotism uh, towards Ukraine. Uh, and I think that the closer, you know, if you are in the East, the closer you go to the East, the more you feel the tension and the possible conflict with Russia. And the more people that are in that region who understand the consequences of war, having been through war already in 2014 and suffered that dislocation, in some cases, a great personal loss. So the closer you are to the heat of the conflict or potential conflict, the more the concern is. Um, to reflect back here in Kiev, where I, where I am today and where I'm based, um, I, I think it's uh, fair to say that people talk about the war. It is the current security situation is the talk of the day. Nonetheless, we'd all rather, and we all as much as possible, get on with doing the normal business of business where that's possible. So we're not um, spending our days worrying about war. We're trying to get on with the business plans we have the plans and the plans we have for, for the future, whether it's in our business lives or in our personal lives, because it's impossible for us to predict the situation with regard to conflict. They, I think I remember speaking to you back in April last year mm -hmm. uh, when military buildup first began uh, on Ukraine's border, and it hasn't ceased since that point. There was a period in the summer when there was a step back, but since then, we by and large lived in one way or another. Uh, with the threat of, of conflict, or at least yeah. the increased security buildup along Ukraine's border. So I, I would I say that the, I guess that's say the question. The is calm. The, the, calm. There's calm. But aware. The, yeah. Indeed. Well, the, the, we have to make a distinction here because, of course, Ukraine has been at war for around eight years. It'll be in May, won't it? And yes. um, so the country's lived with war, and it's it's always been an issue. People were wanted to end this fighting in, uh, in Donbass. However, um, has it changed in any noticeable way that people feel an increase in the threats? I mean, do they, how likely do they think that there's going to be some sort of renewed military action outside of Donbass, possibly Kharkiv could be taken or the land bridge down Novorossiysk, down, down to, to Crimea is another option. Um, there's been talk possibly of uh, Russians bombing all these munitions that are coming in from the West and, you know, just sort of yes. taking out an airfield or two. I mean, do people, yeah. 
do they calculate that into their to their thinking? Most people are probably still of the viewpoint that this will be resolved in a peaceful manner. And in fact, in all probability, uh, we're still heading to a situation where the most likely resolution to the security standoff is some form of peaceful and diplomatic resolution. That's not to say that the threat is not real. It is very real. And the increased reporting of it uh, makes it realer for citizens. But it's not something that, that prevents us going around our everyday jobs or our, our activities. You know, if you go to the opera, it works. If you go to a bar, a restaurant, it works. What have I noticed that's different? I've noticed that people talk about the possibility of conflict. And there was a, uh, in answer to your question, there was probably a moment uh, when people's attitudes changed uh, towards the threat of conflict. It was seen as primarily newspaper talk, talk and particularly Western newspaper talk at that. However, at the point at which uh, the Americans and the British announced that they would uh, reduce uh, their level of diplomatic mission and move non-essential staff out of Ukraine. Um, that was a point where Ukrainians sat up and took notice. They realized that if those two pirates, which are deeply respected, uh, were moving their staff away from Kiev, that it was, or at least some of their staff away from Kiev, that this was something, a threat that needed to be taken seriously. And from that point onwards, you started people seeing people taking, perhaps in some cases, normal and sensible uh, precautions in case the security situation should deteriorate. So maybe simple things like, you know, um, putting in, putting in uh, some uh, key supplies of, of groceries, you know, tin goods, non-perishables, um, thinking about what they might do should uh, conflict again, maybe thinking of moving uh, kids and children and so on out of uh, areas that might be potential targets, uh, beginning to perhaps take more focus and look at the news on how the situation was evolving. Nonetheless, all of that is was quite calm. So if you wanted to describe the situation, it's probably calm, but tense. People are calm going about their business, but nonetheless, there is the knowledge in their minds that there's a possibility that there could be an uptick in conflict. And the so, question, if there was a conflict, would be how would that involve them or impact them? Remembering would, that in the past, it was on mostly in the East. Would you characterize it then? It sounds like you're saying that people are just being prudent as opposed to prepared, that you know that this is in the yeah. air, it could happen. And so you, you make some precautions just in case, but you're not actually yes. getting ready for a war. Yeah. Yes, that's how I would describe it. Yes. And in terms of people who've left, I mean, again, our correspondent saying like some rich people send their kids abroad because, you know, they can and why not. Um, but on yeah. the whole, and, and amongst the diplomatic community, we talked to a British diplomat who'd sent his family home, although there's no official advisory by the uh, by the foreign ministry uh, to to pull British diplomats out. Although I think I saw on the wires this morning that the Biden said yesterday or today that people should leave. Um, and there's yes. a travel advisory as well from the States against going there to is. Ukraine. Yeah. Do you but know anyone? The, yeah, anyone I know that left? after Biden's advisory last night, mm. where he said that the threat again, that the Americans have dialed up and dialed down their viewpoint of the threat. It was imminent, then it wasn't imminent. And then last night, uh, Biden made a statement that was imminent. I understand that the Americans have some form of intelligence, which I know not, uh, which suggests that the threat is imminent. I don't see anything uh, available in, in you know, open sources that suggest that we're in a, a more tense situation than we were two or three weeks ago. In fact, if you look outside of um, 
security briefings, which I, I don't see or don't get as a, as a businessman. What you see is, in fact, um, a diplomatic pathway that has more road to run. And it's also very clear from reading the, the Russian colleagues, and like you, I've met with many of the Russian colleagues, some of them from the Kremlin in the past, and they're usually, there are elements you take seriously about the things that they say. There are things that are not serious to them, there are things that are very important. Well, they're very important at the moment, they're very clear in describing two factors. One, that they have no intention of invading Ukraine. Two, that their concerns should be taken seriously. And three, that they may, if there is no movement from the collective West, move forward with uh, technical and military uh, action. But we don't know what those are. So the, the Americans seem to feel that they have something that suggests the threat is here, whereas the diplomatic environment looks as though there's a significant diplomatic engagement across a number of platforms, across a number of countries, uh, which may lead at some point to better understanding and possibly a diplomatic route out of the impasse. Uh, at the moment, I personally don't feel that the tension has increased other than the statement from Biden. And that comes without any substance other than what he and perhaps the uh, American intelligence services know. And, and we won't get that information. I mean, the um, promises or the assurances coming from the Kremlin that, you know, we have no intention, they say it repeatedly. Um, yes. But that's in the West largely dismissed, uh, out of hands, that it doesn't mean anything. But are you saying that uh, it's got a bit more store or, or what sort of weight do you think I, I, that has? Well, you know, you're a, a Russian expert, probably a better <laughs> Russian expert than I. There's one thing that I've, I've learned in on my experiences that there are times when the Russians say something and they repeat it and they mean it. Mm. I am placing my money on the fact that this time they mean that. Now, you that, doesn't, that doesn't preclude exactly, yeah. the fact that at some point they can change that narrative. And, you know, there has been wide reporting of the possibility of, say, of sort of, you know, black flag events where uh, there's uh, the so-called provocation and then they can say, well, that changed the rules and so we had to act. Of course, that's possible. But it doesn't seem to be their intention from the way in which they're speaking presently. Um, and consequently, I, you know, I think that they want to, if there is a point where they feel they've run out of diplomatic road, that they can't move forward, they may then take action. But for them, it's extremely important, I believe, to say that they took every action possible to resolve the situation through diplomatic means. And that seems to be what they're trying to do. But let me go back a bit. When we had the meeting of the deputy foreign ministers in Geneva, that was seen as being crucial. The next stage after that was the meeting of the foreign ministers, Blinken and Lavrov. Then there was on the 26th of January, the exchange, before that, the exchange of documents, the answers to their questions. Now, at any point there, you could have closed down the diplomatic pathway. It didn't close. It remained open. Indeed, discussions over, over Normandy and the implementation of Minsk using the Normandy format talks came into play. And that's still in play. And as we know, there was a discussion in, in, uh, in Moscow on Tuesday, and there are different versions of that discussion. Perhaps the Macron version is more positive than the uh, Moscow version. But nonetheless, there was a sense that was more road to run on Minsk. We had the end of nine hours of talks on Minsk in the Normandy format <laughs> yesterday in Berlin, yeah. near you. Um, that ended without agreement, but it didn't end up 
with people saying there is no agreement, the process is closed. It came back with them, we'll try and find more work, we'll try and find a way, we'll try and talk. So oh, indeed. as long I mean, as... It just came up on the wires that they, um, the Ukrainian representative said actually these talks are going to be frequent now, which is yes, positive, indeed. positive. So. And I heard different reports. One said the next talks will take place in March. Another report said there was no date fixed. Anyway, my view is that there seems to be diplomatic fruits, diff diplomatic moves ahead, and we haven't yet run out of diplomatic runway. And as long as that's the case, um, I, I am pretty certain that Russia will not look towards using any type of uh, physical aggression against Ukraine during that period. Again, right, so hybrid war is in place all yeah. of the time and every day and has been for eight years. Hmm. But when we the, talk about, sorry, you go on. Well, I was gonna ask, cause I mean, look, what, what you're arguing to step back a bit, um, this whole debate, and I'm looking at some of the people who have joined us, um, and there, there's some people in there who take an opposite side. There's two ways of looking at this. That this whole dispute is about Putin's ambitions for Ukraine, that he doesn't see it as a real country, and that he is intent on at least bringing it back into Russia's sphere of influence, if not actually taking it over. The other point of view is that this is all about NATO. That Putin is what it says on the can that Putin wants a security deal, that the current setup with NATO excludes Russia. It de facto defines Russia as the enemy. And they're saying that we're not, we're not best friends, but you know, we want to do business with you. We've all got houses and made a veil in London and Grosvenor Square, and uh, we spend quite a lot of time there. And we just want a security deal that doesn't threaten us, doesn't point weapons at us. If you believe the latter, when Russia says that it won't invade, then that's probably sincere because all it's doing is rattling its saber in order to get people to come to the negotiating table because they tried this before in 2008 and were ignored with a security deal then. And this time, yeah. Putin's already succeeded. Those talks have now started. Mm. If you believe the former, that it's all that Putin doesn't see Ukraine as a real country, then it's lies because what will come at some point is some sort of action to, in some way, return Ukraine to um, Russia's sphere of influence. That could be limited military action, which would produce maybe a Minsk III, which would be then forced on the Zelensky government. And then that would take Ukraine, I don't know, make it neutral or Donbass would become autonomous. I mean, which, which side of those two do you, do you sit, uh, those two views? It's, well, it's somewhere in between, Frank. Somewhere really? in between, frankly, Ben. Yeah, because f firstly, you know, it, a successful Ukraine, a successful Ukraine with increasing living standards, uh, with improved health care, with rising pensions, uh, with in, imp improved real incomes for citizens, with access to the West, with free travel, which is already in place to the European Union and other countries. Uh, that's a risk for the Kremlin administration, simply because it, it's a question of which system works. If you can look over the fence at your younger brother, and your younger brother's got a better car, bigger house, better healthcare, and bigger pension, um, you're going to be asking, why isn't that us? As we are mm. bigger and we have the resources. And that's not something that's deniable through time. Mm. So it creates a risk. And so there is an element about trying to hamper Ukraine's European integration at its westward direction. Regrettably, Choosing to fight with Ukraine, either in cyber war or in a kinetic conflict, only distance Ukraine and Ukrainians from Russians, who are essentially their neighbors and brothers and friends. 
but at least they were until 2014. So there is an element about Ukraine's success and how it might look. The second element is the security question, which is, I think, a real question. And here you get a clash of cultures. And it's here where Ukraine isn't the issue. It's the Western security dynamic, where where really uh, you have the democratic West, um, you know, whole and free, rule of law, values, democracy, freedom. On the other side, you have Russia, which is essentially an empire. Uh, Russia has gone from one version of an empire to another version of empire, from the Tsarist empire to the Soviet empire to the post-Soviet empire. And it has longer term thinking. And and here I have some space with with the Russians. You know, the security threats to Russia have primarily come from the West. They've come from us, Mm. whether it's the Napoleonic Wars, the First World War, the Second World War. We have been the threat, the collective West. And so Russia thinks like that. And it's in the Russian soul to think of protecting uh, Mother Russia. And so they, they don't have our view. They don't absorb our view of NATO being a defensive alliance. Consequently, they want assurances as to their own security. Now, we find that hard because we're nice people. We obey the rules. We obey the rule of law. We're democracies. We have values. Yeah, but in the last, since 1812, one part of us or another has invaded Russia. They remember that. That's a real risk for them in a way that it wouldn't be a real risk for us. Do you, um, because I mean, this this thing about uh, Mike McFowl, the former ambassador to to Moscow, has made this point very strongly that um, he says the real, it's not about NATO. It's about Putin is afraid of a democratic Ukraine. Um, and then yes. there's those of us who, who watch Ukraine and we're like, democracy in Ukraine doesn't really work very well. I mean, it's uh, working. Democracy progress. doesn't work very well anywhere. It's just the least worst. <laughs> but, I'm yeah, not it's sure worse. it's that much worse in Ukraine than anywhere else. And I speak as a British citizen. Well, uh, as a long-term resident of Ukraine and someone who, who knows Eastern Europe well, um, to what yeah. extent is there a difference between Ukraine as a democracy and Russia? I mean, in Russia, it's, oh. it's sort of a fake... Uh, yeah. put, Potemkin democracy, uh, an anocracy, if you will. But um, to, to what extent would you characterize that Ukraine's actually made, how much progress down that path has it made? Well, I think it's made enormous progress mm. in the time I've been here. Uh, you know, and it's made it sometimes in extremis, where it could have chosen the wrong path, whether that was the Orange Revolution in, in 2004, or whether it was uh, the Maidan Revolution in 2013 14. Democracy and the freedom to express your opinion freely is crucial in Ukraine. Now, there are many flaws to democracy, and indeed in Ukraine, but it is a real, rather, you know, kind of at times jagged and visceral democracy, mm. but it is a democracy. But and the people it value does it. Work. The people value it. It's I mean, not they, perfect. They... No democracy is. No, indeed. It has, but... It's immature. It has distance to travel. But compared to Russia, where I've also worked, it's radically different. You know, people say their media is controlled here. Well, maybe, but there's so many different media that you can't control the media. There is real media freedom here, whether whether, whether people like it or not. And, you know, I speak as someone who works with, with the person who often comes under great criticism from the media. I can be sure that the media is free. And I, I couldn't say that. I couldn't possibly say that about yeah. Russia. I couldn't say 
there were real free democratic parties. And while uh, we're talking about Europe, society, um, the case. So it's, very, mean, it's radically different in terms of freedom and democracy, and it's moving further in the Western European model. You, you mentioned earlier that there's a, been a changing attitude amongst Ukrainians towards Russia, because, you know, that the two peoples that are culturally joined at the hip. However, because of all this nastiness starting in 2014, um, the popularity of joining the EU was there from the beginning, um, but now the, mm -hmm. the idea of joining NATO has become popular. I remember in Timoshenko's day um, that she didn't even dare mention NATO because everyone had been brought up with NATO as the enemy, and so the, the government didn't even float the idea, and that's still true in Russia. But all of this conflict and Russia's bullying, has it, to what extent has it disillusioned Ukraine's, Ukrainians towards their, their, you know, their brothers in, in Russia? Um, I think uh, Ukrainians uh, think differently. Uh, the viewpoint is they're very able to distinguish, in most cases, the difference between um, the actions of the Russian government and the actions of individual Russian citizens. Uh, now, there are instances you know, where families have fallen out over issues, for example, of the invasion uh, of Donbass, the occupation of Donbass, by Russian separatists, Russian-backed separatists. Uh, that has caused divisions in families between what is true and what is false. But on a, a normal everyday level, Ukrainians don't have any beef with Russian citizens. Mm. And they are able to distinguish the difference between governments and the view mm. of the Russian government as opposed to the Russian people. And Indeed, those links I, still remain strong. And I, I, know, know, lots, I know lots of Russians um, who are completely uncomfortable with the whole fighting in Donbass. They don't like it either. But let, what about the government? Let's move on to that because um, although the, the West has been hyping this up or, or writing a lot about it at least. Uh, yes. Zelensky himself came out with that presser, I think two weeks ago, um, where he said like, calm, actually the situation is stable. Nothing has changed since 2014. And this was dismissed by a lot of people in the West as him just talking up the markets, uh, trying to keep the, the lid on any panic and that mm. this was just normal politics. But you know, where I see it, it looks fairly sincere. I mean, to what extent is the government alarmed by the Western reporting? To what extent does it buy into it? Because the signals coming out of Kiev are actually kind of mixed. Um, yeah. Uh, what, are the, what are the government saying? That you, you, what's your takeaway on it? Uh, the, the government uh, speak about it in a less sensationalist uh, format than Western media reporting on it, by and large. Uh, they talk in a balanced way now about the buildup of troops, um, the number of troops, um, and the potential uh, for conflict. However, uh, you know, they, they, you wouldn't hear uh, a Ukrainian minister or the president saying, as you heard President Biden say last night, that invasion was imminent, because actually they don't have that information and they don't have that perspective. So I think that uh, the but surely the Ukrainians got the, it, it's got its own intelligence services. I mean, and they they must know they have, they, they, must they are spies. giving a different briefing. They're giving a different briefing internally, which says that there is not the imminent sense of invasion. Certainly not that which is coming um, from the United States. Um, I, you know, we don't have access to that on either side, so I don't know. I can only say that one. It's sensible that the pre president suggests suggests 
that we should remain calm because frankly panic mm. achieves nothing uh, but we should be aware and i think now they're making people aware you know we've had testing of the alarm systems in kiev uh, sight and proof signage ready to, so we know where to go uh, if there should be an aerial attack um, there is preparations underway should the security situation deteriorate but there isn't a sense of panic there is a sense of resignation that this may happen uh, but there isn't a sense of panic and i think uh, it, you know if, if you increase the threat to the point of view that people believe that tomorrow a war will begin that isn't the sense that we have and it's not the sense that one gets from a reading of the diplomatic track at the moment so i think that the, the president at the same time, the president's not saying it's, it's not going to, you know, that the West are hyping this because there was a suggestion that he, he thinks it's getting out of hand on the Western reporting. The, and that, there yes, was so a sense that was being sensationalist and mm. the, the dialogue um, from Western media and some Western politicians was uh, sort of placing it, placing Ukraine into a sense of threat that wasn't yet realized, wasn't really in existence, that it was uh, amping up the temperature too high vis-a-vis -vis the reality of the situation on the ground. Um, and I, I think that they were seeking to sort of to, to dial back that sense of imminent invasion and focus more on the question of dialogue. And I think that that seems to be the correct approach the government's taking at this point. It's not that Ukrainians are unaware of the threat of conflict. It's just that they are uh, being calmly and sensibly preparing themselves should the worst take place. Do you, um, do you think um, with the, Zelensky's position here, I mean, he's actually caught in a bind because um, on the one hand, he's got to keep the people calm. On the other hand, he's got the Americans in particular uh, pushing this whole Russia aggression thing very aggressively. And so much as a lot of the news is being generated by US intelligence coming out of Washington, um, we don't see the kind of troop movements that we saw um, in April on social media. Social media reporting, you know, citizen reporting, if you like, is actually kind of calm. Um, and it leaves me with the sense that this is, a, to some extent, a phony war. But at the same time, as we said before, Putin's clearly um, interested in hyping this up, of making a credible threat in order to get these negotiations to go. And yeah. Um, yeah. What, what's the... The government's view then, because a lot of these talks, I mean, if you look at the Geneva round in January, um, that Ukraine wasn't involved. It, it, just, no. it didn't participate. Well, if, we, if we take a step back, stuff. Yeah. It, it is. And th this is the point. If we take a step back and look at this, we're, we're talking about a conflict which could happen in Ukraine. But what what is it that Russia wants? Now, you, you mentioned Mike McFall, and my view too would be that they don't want a successful democratic, European orientated rule of law based Ukraine, because that could be a danger. But that's not their biggest concern. Their biggest concern, I think, truly is the question of security. And they've placed themselves in a position where they can now make a challenge of the current security order. And they've placed them that, set themselves in that position. Russia's placed themselves in that position very carefully by uh, investing significantly in training and rearmament, investing in improving its hydrocarbon economy, particularly mm. the pipeline Nord Stream 2 to Germany, and vitally in, and I think you, I think you wrote about this recently, in ensuring they don't have a, a significant stockpile of capital in its strategic investment yeah. fund 
$640 billion and rising to be able to cope with any of the sanctions. On the other side, it looks at the time. It looks at the, 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 what happened during the first two years of Zelensky's presidency, where the Russians claim that there hasn't been real engagement, there hasn't been process, the process hasn't been followed up, Minsk has not been delivered on, which they had high hopes of. Mm. And then they look broader. And when they look more broadly and they say, hey, look, there's a new American president who's pivot, pivoting more to the Pacific than to Europe. We have decisions over Afghanistan that, um, you know, when someone says they're going to stand behind you, well, they stand behind you and left in the case of Afghanistan, even though the British wished to remain, Americans wished to go and go, they did. And we saw that as a, I would say, you know, a very messy catastrophe really for the international community in the manner in which it stands behind those that it claims to stand behind. That's a message that was well received and understood in the Kremlin with regard to real hard security intent on behalf of the allies and NATO countries. Then we look at the European Union uh, struggling to deal with the uh, the impact of COVID. We see uh, Chancellor Merkel shuffling off the stage and a new guy coming in from the SPD, who you will be familiar with and know that that may not be a good signal. And we can maybe ask you about that in a moment because I think (laughs) you know more about it than I do. And then we see he will. Yes. Uh, after he's been to Moscow, I don't know if he's going before Indeed. or after, but I know it's the same trip. So you, you have a Europe that's weakened. You have Brexit with the European Union losing perhaps one of its strongest economic and security partners, the United Kingdom. You have a leaderless Europe with Macron now trying to fill that gap. Mm. You have a United Kingdom potentially humbled by leaving the European Union and COVID and the economic, economic impact of that. What you have is NATO and NATO proxy countries in weakness. Mm. And if you're, if you're a strong security player like Putin, you look at that and say, this may be my opportunity to achieve Absolutely. what I believe is a crucial security objective for my nation. And I'm gonna prosecute that right now. Yeah, I agree. If you were Putin and you genuinely, and you believe this thing that he's always had this bee in the bonnet about it, so when he wants to do something about it, now is the perfect time. Yeah. I mean, um, the Biden particularly, um, the, the, the point with him to note is that uh, the US has had this policy of withdrawing from these Cold War era uh, missile treaties. And Biden was against that as a senator. And the first thing he did in the first week in the office was to re, uh, renew the START three treaty. And he said very clearly, we want to do arms controls. And the Kremlin has said very clearly, we want to do arms controls. Hmm. So there is some common ground. But there is. Um, I, I wanted to ask, I wanted to talk about business, but quickly, um, one last thing on the general politics. Um, yeah. That this began in Geneva very clearly with Ryabkov demanding from um, Sherman that no NATO ever, 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 never, never watertight and clad. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to fly. I, I don't see how going to get make that happen. But then um, the new thing that Macron has introduced is to focus more on Normandy 4. And there the idea would be actually to implement uh, implement the Minsk two agreements because yes. that's also also a solution to this and so much as part of that means that Donbass has to become autonomous change the constitution and an autonomous Donbass which is de facto under Russia's control can veto Ukraine uh, membership to NATO at any point and the Kremlin yes. I think would accept that as a solution because they're all yes. for it. so the Kremlin wants it the West wants it it's actually you know it was Merkel that pushed that deal through 
Um, and these normally talks have suddenly restarted and quite vigorously as well. I mean, they're not yes. getting anywhere. Like you say, yesterday, the nine hours of talks of Kozov said, like, we were just banging our heads against a brick wall. The Ukrainians weren't moving. But my question to you is, it's been said to me that it's an impossible sell, Minsk too, that you cannot implement it because the Ukrainian people will not accept it and that Kiev and Zelensky government and Poroshenko's government uh, a dead set against them, despite the fact that they've been signed off on and despite the fact that all of the partners, including Russia, are pushing for them. Is it, what would happen if they tried to push that through? The, the big difficulty here is that the Ukrainians signed Minsk one and Minsk two. Um, but and I, I've been in track one and a half and track two peace discussions with the other party, with the Russians. The interpretation placed on the 13 causes of Minsk between the two sides is radically different. The Russians interpret it as a semi-autonomous Donbass with the ability to potentially veto strategic interests of Ukraine, including yeah. membership of the European Union and NATO. On the other side, you have the Ukrainian viewpoint. That is, we agreed to decentralization. We're carrying out decentralization across Ukraine, and Donbass will receive that decentralization. It is, what is unacceptable politically, even if they've signed up for it, which they have, is for a Ukrainian leader in the current political environment to be able to give that right of veto mm. to an occupied Donbass, which will essentially be um, under Russian control, as you say, not least of which because of the you know, eight years of negative propaganda against Ukraine, describing it absolutely incorrectly and falsely as a fascist state. Secondly, you have passportization with yeah. over 750,000 passports issued to yeah, Ukrainians. Half the population there. Exactly. Yes. So it, that is a huge stumbling block. And of course, those aspects, certainly the passportization was against Minsk. It should not have happened. It, it is, you know, it's against the spirit of the agreement, although passportization isn't mentioned specifically yeah. in, the, in the 13 points. So it's very hard for, a Ukraine, for Ukraine to find any Ukrainian president. I'm not being critical of this one or of Mr. Poroshenko. It's very hard for any Ukrainian president to find a format of, of um, self-governance and semi-autonomous nature for the currently occupied territories of Lugansk and Donetsk that will be acceptable broadly to the Ukrainian public. And, you know, real politics at play, midterm is a very bad time to attempt to do something as strategically difficult mm. as that trick. So you That's think it's, why on, it's my, problematic. My feeling, is, uh, my feeling is that it is a solution. It's an easier sell than um, uh, offering some sort of guarantee that Ukraine can never join NATO um, by the Western, by the NATO members themselves. But in practice, um, it's, it seems to be unworkable. But would the, there the be, a, would there be protests? I mean, would, would there be a, a large scale uprising? Uh, if there would be protests and I, I fear, uh, they, they, you know, it's likely there would be protests. Most analysts, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on this issue of the internal, um, the internal right wing and the army, the internal right wing, uh, right wing militias, but they do exist. There's enough documentation on it. I think that it is uh, dangerous 
for Ukraine to go down that pathway um, without really explaining it in advance and in detail to the country and consulting the country if it chose to go down that pathway, if a form of words could be found. It certainly offers a diplomatic route. It's a question whether it can, whether that diplomatic route, which looks straightforward, as you say, can be delivered in the complex world of real politics. And like you say, at this point in the election cycle for Zelensky, um, it would be it would be death. I mean, it was suicide. He, uh, he wouldn't get re-elected. I, uh, you know, it, it could be a, an extremely destructive force in Ukrainian domestic politics. Not let's, just um, for him. Let, let's um, switch tax. Um, yes. Put your, your SCM hat on um, yeah. and look at this whole situation from the point of view of big business. Um, and my impression is at the end of the day, big business is uh, agnostic to all this politics. You know, they're in business to make money, profits, uh, invest and sell to whoever will buy products. Um, but to what extent is this 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 divorce between Russia and uh, Ukraine and the sanctions. And at the other side of the, the fence, the EU, Ukraine is not a member, yeah. has no prospects of becoming a member. The quotas it yeah. has are tiny. So the access it gets to the European Union on preferential terms is very limited. How, how destructive is this for business? How difficult is it to make plans? Uh, you know, how, what's the strategic thinking about this? I think the first thing you're right, you know, business likes to have clear rules of the game. It likes stability and it likes a stable political and economic environment so it can go on investing and developing and growing. And we haven't had that. Uh, now, the external risk of uh, posed by the, the, current, the current situation with Russia uh, makes it difficult um, for businesses, firstly, uh, when they wish to uh, access capital markets, uh, because clearly uh, that any uh, any bank or any investor is going to look at that and say, I'm not sure we can support this presently. So if you're looking to recapitalize, uh, then that's a challenge. Uh, mm. The second the second point would be uh, for, for foreign direct investment. Ukraine is starved of foreign direct investment. Um, foreign direct investment was beginning to return uh, in the later in, in 2021 but that will be put behind you know that won't happen now. we understand fully as, a, as, as an economist which is my original training you, you look outside and you see simply when um, the possibility of investing in Ukraine goes towards a credit committee uh, when stories of a potential conflict on that territory are the front page of newspapers the top of social media feeds and the lead in TV news that credit committees are going to have a lot of questions of whether they will make that investment. So it stalls foreign direct investment. It also uh, devalues the value of existing uh, bonds, which are in the marketplace due to the uh, threat of risk. So when you look at it, it damages the business and investment climate. Uh, what I mentioned earlier, yeah, it, just it reduces the availability of FDI and capital and it increases the costs. And are those, um, but a business ISCM, I mean, and most of Eastern Europe, the, the bulk of investment is done out of retained earnings, but um, which also favours the large yeah. companies. But, well, but, it's, it, it's not. Most of it is done through a combination of retained earnings 
and money raised in the capital markets. So you, you need both to be able to move forward. You need, ideally, you need, in most cases, the ideal is three. One is retained earnings, two is capital raised in capital markets, and three is strategic partners. When you have those three, you have certainly the conditions for very successful investment. All three are undermined uh, by continued security risk. If you um, take the view that Putin wants to basically hobble Ukraine and stop it becoming a success, then he's already succeeded in so much as I keep saying that Ukraine should be the um, it should be the best investment story in the whole former Soviet Union because it's Shoot. the only country that has not done Shoot. the catch-up growth. <laughs> it's been 20 years in a mess. And uh, with these new governments, you know, and a uh, reform-minded government, it should be, you know, like Uzbekistan, attracting significant amounts of capital because of, and because of the geography as well. I think that without, without COVID, Ukraine was in a position at that point in March 2020 when the investment climate really could have taken off particularly because of the desire to go to, to do nearshoring uh, away from uh, China and particularly mm. for European supply chains to bring that closer to home. And already Ukraine was seeing a significant influx of nearshore investors, particularly those coming from, from Germany uh, and Poland. And uh, I think that this type of uh, conflict uh, threat undermines that story. Uh, I also think that you know Ukraine has has done well in the 16 years I've lived here. It's just that it's failed to to make the speed of transformation um, that was possible. But we had a sense that maybe that speed could be picked up, particularly as we had a, a government that said it was backing reform and would make FDI uh, a, a priority and had a target of six uh, percent GDP growth uh, per annum. That hasn't happened. But we have to say, you know, COVID also intervened into that. But there are also some really rather poor decisions, for example, with regard to renewable energy, which was booming. But then the nice. government chose to independently and unilaterally uh, change the existing agreement with investors. And that significantly undermined investor confidence in what had been a successful marketplace. Nonetheless, that was the one sector. I mean, there was I think the year before there was zero FDI. Um, yeah. But the green energy has been the one sector which has attracted significant FDI. Uh, until until, the, until that point of the, the you know, changing unilaterally the tariffs. But that was uh, but, also yeah. a failure of the energy reforms, wasn't it? The, the, the general, what's it called, um, the general purchasing uh, body basically hadn't got any money and it couldn't pay the bills uh, because the um, tariffs were too Yes, so in another, it, it's a sort of mismanagement of the energy sector, frankly, in some mm. cases. Um, with um, you know uh, corruption and mismanagement, particularly in the state-owned sector, and um, that how, and, and how would you, subsidizing how would you... subsidizing energy costs, yes. uh, not for poor citizens who do need assistance, but mm. for business some businesses who don't need assistance at all. They just need to pay and pay commercial rates properly. Because <clears throat> the the, the reform agenda um, is a mixed bag. I mean, so I, I'd be quite critical of the energy reforms that, that, that wasn't done. Yeah. And then we ended up with this huge disaster in the green energy tariff story. Um, but something like the banking sector has been transformed and that's looking fantastic. That was really good. I mean, yeah, that was good. A, but that, that was work done by, by, by Petro Poroshenko mm -hmm. um, and uh, the former NBU governor. And it was done very well. And it yeah, is a success story. We have yeah. one of the... Uh, top 10 banks in Ukraine, first Ukrainian international bank. And we absolutely welcomed the reforms that took place in the sector. It really made a, a huge, a significant difference on the stability of the banking sector. And then as the banks 
properly capitalized the ability of the banks to then support lending in the real economy. So I think it was a, rightly pointed out as being a huge success. No, and the banking sector sailed through last year's crisis and uh, even increased profits year on year, not by much, but they did. And uh, at Privat Bank too, I mean, that's now the most profitable bank in the country, despite all the problems it had. So well, as a businessman- As it should be. Yeah, as a businessman, I mean, what, how would you characterize the reforms? I mean, is the business operation and the business climate, is it improving uh, as a result of- all these um, I, You know, I really think that the this government certainly tackled corruption and we see a reduction in the level of corruption in Ukraine. And that, that's a plus. I think the reform in the energy sector, where really all you need to do is form or follow the European Union uh, elements in the European Union Association Agreement and the European uh, Energy Community Treaty, follow those chapters and it's successful. That hasn't been done so because of an attempt to manually manage elements in the energy sector for reasons unknown as to why one would wish to do that. I leave others to speculate on that question. Uh, I, I think that what has been regrettably a failure is the rule of law. You know, I've been here 16 years. If I spoke to my boss, Mr. Akhmeto, he would say, we would, he, I remember him telling me like 15 years ago, what was the most important thing we needed? And he said, we need to have reform the judiciary and the rule of law. And you know what? We still need it. It is still, the largest single aspect that holds back investors mm. from investing in Ukraine. The fear so, yeah. uh, that, they, that they simply will not get the returns that they deserve and that their money is in some way unsafe in an environment where the courts are, are not independent and don't make decisions based purely on legal questions. And I, I would just add, you know, you know, I'm also the deputy chair of the British Ukrainian Chamber of Commerce, and we have some ideas, for example, bringing in a legal ombudsman that could oversee these courts to check that decisions that were made were true legal decisions based on the fact and not as a result of the legal equivalent of checkbook journalism. Mm. So that makes a nice segue into the last topic I want to cover briefly, the, this whole campaign against the oligarchs. So it's a speech in March where he basically launched a campaign and then there's been a number of like anti-Kolomoisky laws, there's been an anti-Akhmedov law, um, where they're trying to make it register, as far as I understand, of oligarchs and who are not allowed to have direct contact with governments. And how does an oligarch, Akhmedov in particular, see all of this? I mean, is this, it's kind of like discriminatory, but at the same time, you're just talking about the, um, the, the, how, the, judicial system is wide mm -hmm. open to abuse and is absolutely abuser. and i look yes. at mr kolomoisky is a good example i mean he quite blatantly has got the calls of his pockets uh, when his whole campaign to get privat bank back so uh, how do you operate an environment like that yeah, so i I've, you know if we want to address the the, the oligarch law firstly look mr akhmetov and scm mr akhmetov isn't an oligarch that'd be his viewpoint mm. and and, and and I'll tell you why, why it's right is, why do we describe people who run their business legally, who are the biggest taxpayers in the country, who have the best corporate governance in Ukraine, why are they oligarchs? They're investors. In our case, the largest domestic investor in Ukraine, we're a strategic investor that makes most of our investment inside Ukraine, no matter what the circumstances. 
we are loyal to Ukraine and its economy because we see the potential. As long as that potential remains, we will continue to invest in this country. So what happens if you designate the country's largest private sector investor who invests almost double the EBRD does, if you designate that person as an oligarch, you well, then limit that person's ability to raise money and invest. Yeah. You discriminate against them. You undermine their human rights. You destroy the domestic investment environment. This is a piece of political theater. What you really need to do is make transparent decisions, improve the rule of law and fight corruption. Putting 13 people on a list and calling them oligarchs is play school politics. It's not reform, it's not change, it's fake. I understand, I think the solution which you're suggesting should be to have a functionary, transparent judiciary and just everybody in front of the Absolutely. law. Absolutely, rule but of law. Not, but that's not working. And so the, far. The, yeah, indeed. And the government's to blame for, for not you know, pushing through these judicial reforms. Um, it, it's a huge problem. But at the same time- Because it hasn't pushed it as hard as it should do. And I but think can, that we need to, that's where we need to focus our effort. If we want to get those FDI numbers up and the GDP numbers up, yeah. then that's what one has to do. I agree. But I mean, there's two things here. You can look at it in an ideological point of way, and obviously having a transparent and clean and honest judiciary would be the way to go. And that is the solution in the long term. Indeed. Yeah. In the short term, I think the oligarch law is like a pragmatic. Uh, step because the judiciary is partly so corrupt because oligarchs pay the judges all this money and pervert the decisions and so you and you saw last year when when um, Zelensky had that showdown with the constitutional court that his hands were tied um, because on the one hand he has to keep to the, the letter of the law but on the other hand the judges were clearly corrupt and he needs to get them out but he hasn't got the constitutional power to do that and it's the same with the oligarchs. On the one hand, you know, they produce IFSR accounts and they stick to the rule of law you know, publicly. But on the other hand, you've got someone like Kolomoisky going around the back and handing a bunch of judges a whole bunch of money to get a decision that he wants. And everybody knows that goes on. And I have to deal with that. If there are bad actors, it, it does go around to the question of this confluence of two crucial issues that all investors talk about, which is corruption and the rule of law. So let's take the example. How do you tackle it? Well, actually, you prosecute people who pursue corrupt schemes. Uh, so you, you investigate them, that's fighting corruption, and then you put them in front of the courts, that's the judicial system. Now, you mentioned a person, I, I won't repeat his name, but if that is a bad actor, you don't take 13 people who could be the biggest investors in the country and say you're all bad. I mean, that's lazy. You don't. You take the tough decision you actually go after the person who's wrong. You don't write a list, like writing to Santa Claus for Christmas. Indeed. You find so, out where the problem is and you resolve it. There, and that's why this isn't effective. Yeah. It's a smokescreen. Everybody that I know, I mean, I know some of those people on the list have spoken with them in the past. These are business people. They'd respect the rule of law. And I believe that if that's in place, then there's no need for this type of um, shopping list that is primarily political and deeply ineffective. And behind the scenes, if you speak with you know, 
let's say, diplomats and bankers and so on, they understand that this oligarch law is a piece of ineffectual legislation that is in essence populist in its nature. What we really need is change. Not what about changing the topic slowly and talking about oligarchs? The, the other problem is that they fund the political careers of a lot of the deputies in the Rada. And they mm. form blocks uh, in strategic places on strategic committees. Yes. Um, in order to shape the laws, I mean, a to their advantage and also to block things that they don't want to see go through. Um, yeah. And there's again the, the anti Kolomoisky law, suddenly it had 16,000 amendments, which would have taken two years to actually review until they had to come back and change the law, allowed to do review on block. But this is also a problem because the political system itself is corrupt because of the oligarch money that's gone into the Rada to back, and we, we saw this in Russia as well, I mean, Putin cleaned yeah. that out, that's the advantage of being authoritarian, that he got rid of that, but in, in Ukraine it's still a cancer, isn't it? Uh, I have to say that, you know, after the last elections, I can say that there are six MPs that are known to Mr. Ahmed, and the relationship with them is well known. Um, we're not funding MPs, we're not paying politicians, that's not what we're doing. I can't say the same for others. They have their own problems. They have their own solutions. But we would say that if you're paying politicians with brown envelopes, then that's not the way forward. That simply undermines democracy. It's not good for business. I would agree, and I know Mr. Akhmetov would agree, that what you need is a clear division between politics and business. Get back, you know, move to the European format where we lobby in a transparent way with our with government, with politicians. That's honest. And that's what we try to do as a business group. And it's one of the jobs that I have as director of international investor relations to do that. For example, if I go to Brussels, I've had to sign the transparency register, which, which asks me to clearly state uh, on behalf of the group, uh, what we lobby for, which issues we're interested in, how much money we spend on it. It's a transparent process. No one questions that, that there is corrupt payment, because there isn't. And we need to move to that system in Ukraine. And I think that we're ahead of the game in that, in now not supporting at any point politicians and political parties. Mm -hmm. uh, the, that link needs to be dissolved, uh, and it should happen across the board, and we would see a much better performance. But I, I would, again, again, Ben, you know, I, I find that when one uses the word oligarch, it's, it's a bit lazy. I'm not just right. having a go at you here, but yeah, yeah, no, it's a loaded term. Corruption where it exists inside society in Ukraine. If it where it exists, it's much it's a broad issue. It's not 13 people you can put on a list. Much better to respect people individually for what they do individually, for their values individually, and make the right decisions. Calling people oligarchs allows politicians to subvert their responsibility. They're able to say, it wasn't me. It wasn't what I didn't do. It was them. And to give it a big name means you can point the blame at someone else. Each business group and each businessman and investor, like Mr. Akhmetov, should be responsible for what they do. The collective noun oligarch fails to get to the point of responsibility. And I think that we need to get to that point of responsibility. And that will um, create change, holding people accountable. 
we're just about out of time. Um, I, I was going to do, well, look, we, we have one question from Johannes Anderson, who I think you know. I do. Um, <laughs> and he's asking a practical question, uh, an interesting one, Metinvest exports that the steel goes yeah. out through, I think mm -hmm. it's Maripol, isn't it? Uh, yes, and that's just been closed down for these live. Well, it, it's so very it's just... that's very confusing because they've had two different reports on that today. So I'm going to start with a, I don't know, but yes, there was a point that it was closed. Then I saw um, a, a cable uh, from the Russians that said it wasn't closed and that the military exercise in the Azov uh, hat were not taking place. And so I don't know if that's closed or not. What I can say is that we've been here before with Met Invest and others and having to ship goods out of, uh, out of uh, the eyes of sea. And we've been able to do so. Uh, it, sometimes it's taken longer if there's been um, political tension to ship those goods. When it's not been possible to ship the goods, then it is possible for us uh, to move the goods uh, through other routes, through Black Sea ports. Um, so so it doesn't tenancies. prevent exports, but it can make them more expensive if that blockade is in place and stays in place. But as I say, it's not clear at the moment from everything that I've read today whether that's the case. And in general, I mean, how disruptive is that? I mean, when the catch straits were, were closed, that it adds, uh, those... it adds time and cost, basically. Mm. Uh, you know, it... these are elements of like hybrid war. You make things more difficult, you make them more challenging. Um, it, it adds cost because you, you then um, ship the, the goods by rail to a, a, a Black Sea port, deep sea port, and then ship them on from there. At the moment, we have the Think of Metaverse, we've got about 10 um, Handymax vessels running a sort of shuttle service uh, to Europe and to, uh, of course, the Black Sea and to the Mid Middle East and North Africa, taking goods directly from Maripol uh, to customers. So it, it's possible without it. Um, but it, it improves, it uh, extends the logistic chain and it can cost. And of That's course, you know, steel is competitive. So yeah. every time <laughs> someone puts a dollar on the cost of the steel, you become less competitive. Yeah, yeah. Look, Jock, um, we've run out of time. We've been talking for an hour. Extremely yeah. interesting. I hope uh, you don't end up in your basement living on cold baked beans for the, <laughs> for the, for the next month or Valentine's I, Day. I hope not. <laughs> yeah, uh, I hope not. Yeah, but it's, we got, I, you know, I, one has to remain optimistic, but realistic in circumstances. Yeah, I still believe that the chances are that we will, on balance, that I hope there will be enough diplomatic pathway and initiatives that may uh, reach a conclusion that doesn't involve some type of conflict. We shall see. Jock, I'd like to thank you again for taking the time. It's really great to talk to you. And I hope next time we'll pleasure. Be, be over a beer in Kiev itself. I hope so. I hope to see you face to face again soon, Ben. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. And okay. to all, all our listeners, uh, thank you so much for taking part. And uh, it, 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 I hope you enjoyed it and found it as, as interesting as I did, uh, both of those on Twitter. Um, I point you um, to B&E. Uh, we cover this story on a daily basis. Uh, we have correspondents everywhere. And, including um, two in Kiev who are following the story day to day. Our focus is more on business. If you go to intellinews.com slash welcome, then you can find um, uh, a link where you can take a trial to our, our premium service, which is in-depth on Ukraine. And I'd also recommend you take a look at our editor's picks, which is a daily free email that I send out of the best stories we've done in the last 24 hours from the whole patch um, that we cover. And also a link to um, the B&E YouTube channel where you can see this podcast later and the previous ones. Last week, we did a similar 
podcast that covered similar questions about Ukraine and the crisis, but then from uh, Russian and the focus on Russian business. So until next time, thank you once again for participating. All the best from me, Ben Harrison.